You're listening to audio from Hope Fellowship Church of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. If you'd like to check out more resources or to donate to this ministry, please visit hfcnh.org. We've been walking through the Bible. Creation, fallout, Abraham, Israel, Moses, Joshua, and then right in today into King David. And we've been summarizing big ideas and big, long, drawn out history, really thousands of years of history we've been uh, doing in short episodes. And so today, we're in episode seven, King David. And we're gonna be looking at just these brief characters. And really these characters, in so many times we look at characters in the Bible, they are in many ways, little microcosms of the grander, bigger picture. And so last week we looked at Joshua as the victorious rest, Judges, there's this cyclical rebellion, and then Ruth is this like hopeful redemption, this little ray of hope in the darkness of the terrible, uh, violent world of the Judges. And so we look at these kinds of concepts in the Bible, little microcosms of the greater story. Little microcosms in literature are often, as we read in the Bible or in other works of literature, little microcosms, little characters that are, that are storylines, that are miniature representations of the bigger picture, of the bigger story. And the beginning of Samuel is loaded with little characters, characters that are depictions or pictures of the bigger story. Another way to think through this is like you have protagonists and antagonists and you have the main characters and side characters and then you sometimes have characters that are called foil characters. They're like the opposite of what you're supposed to be and we can learn so much from uh, the grand meta-narrative of the Bible by looking at sometimes some of these characters. We looked at the book of Ruth last week. Ruth is literally four little chapters and yet you could say a microcosm of the entire story of the Bible. And so in the four chapters of Ruth, you get the sense of what God is doing from the beginning of history to save mankind and to provide a kinsman redeemer to give redemption to his people. And so 1 Samuel picks up in this time of the judges, this really crazy time period, and you're gonna see a little bit of how bleak and dark it got. In in 1 Samuel, one of the first characters we are introduced to is Hannah and Eli and Samuel, but particularly this person of Eli, the high priest. And yet, you know how he's depicted in this time and especially at the end of his life, he's depicted as going blind and gravely obese. Okay, I'm not making that up. The Bible says he was going, he was going blind and getting fat. And then he actually eventually dies at the end of his life by falling on his own neck and dying. And it's a depiction, a picture. Like why would they put those things into the Bible to describe Eli? I think in many ways it's a picture of the state of the nation of Israel at that time, the lack of spirituality at that time, the the grave um, moral decay that had happened. They were a people and they were going blind. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are are crass, wicked, and the Bible describes them as worthless. They were in the, uh, the holy places of God in the storehouses around the tabernacle. They were profaning the worship of God and extorting their people. And so the backdrop of the story is very bleak. In fact, in 1 Samuel 3, you can look at that in 1 Samuel 3, verses one through three, we get this amazing story of God calling Samuel, but he's calling him out of a very dark place. 
In 1 Samuel 3 verse one, it says, and the word of the Lord was rare. Well, actually before it says, now the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and then it says the word of the Lord was rare. It was just rare. They didn't hear from God, and in those days there was no frequent vision. It was dark. And yet, it's not left without hope. For there was no frequent vision, verse two, and at the time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. And then I like this phrase, the lamp of God had not yet gone out. You get a picture of the story that's going on. There is grave darkness and wickedness and violence, oppression, apathy, and and anarchy going on in Israel at that time. Even the high priest himself is depicted as going blind and not being able to perceive God's word or his vision. And yet here, we see the lamp of God has not gone out. Judges, there was a time towards the end that there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, it said. But Hannah, See, in 1 Samuel, we see this one opening, the birth of Samuel, and it comes about through one barren woman's life. Incredible faith that she had at the beginning of Samuel with this time period of the judges that Hannah is this depiction. She is barren, she is helpless, she is mocked, she is shamed, and yet she humbly submitted to God and his power to provide a son for her, to free her of her shame, to cover her and provide for her. She prays and cries out to God for help. Lord, help, hear me, answer me. This is a beautiful picture of the entire state of the nation at this time, crying out in their barren state. And it is God who rescues and sends her a son. Her son's name is Samuel. God answers her, provides Samuel's a boy. She dedicates him to uh, be raised in the tabernacle under Eli, the priest, to serve as a priest. And at night, he's the one where God calls him, Samuel, Samuel. He thinks it's Eli talking. Eli doesn't even know what's going on. And then finally, he says, here am I, hineni, here am I, here I am. And then the final time, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Where no one else was hearing the word from the Lord, Samuel was spoken to by God and he receives God's word and God says, I am going to do a thing in Israel. I am going to do a thing in Israel, he says. And it's this beautiful prayer that I want to look at before we look at all of that God is going to do. We see kind of a prophetic statement from Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter two. Hannah is, receives that she's going to have this child and Samuel is gonna be born and she worships God and there's this beautiful prayer in 1 Samuel chapter two. I'm not gonna look at the whole of it today, but look at this uh, verse eight and nine. 1 Samuel two, verse seven and eight and nine, it talks about uh, these, these amazing words that come from the mouth of, of, of uh, Hannah here. And Hannah is, again, this microcosm of all that we're seeing in the rest of the Bible. She's giving us an insight as to what God is going to do. She says these words in 1 Samuel two, verse seven, the Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit the seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on him whom he has set the world. Verse nine, I love this. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. You're gonna see that in kings. Those kings that are coming up who are faithful to God, he will guard them and be faithful to them. But those, the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For, get this phrase, not by might shall man prevail. It's gonna be kind of this theme for the morning. Not by might shall man prevail. 
We do not have the power to prevail on our own, and Hannah is saying that. Not by might, Lord, can I do anything. I give it all to you. I humble myself to you. You are the one who saves. The story of the scripture really is ultimately telling us about Jesus, that the Lord is salvation. He is the one who saves, and that we cannot save ourselves. It is the Lord alone who is our salvation. We sang earlier, there is no rival, for you have no rival. God alone is powerful, not by might, not by my might shall I prevail, but by God's, and he will prove that over and over. There's a small microcosm of this entire story if you skip over to 1 Samuel 7. There's this story I just wanna summarize. It's this amazing story at Mizpah where the, the, the people have sinned gravely against God and Samuel gathers all the people and he says, come to this place of Mizpah and I want you to come before God and we are going to ask for repentance. We are gonna confess our sins and he prays for all the people. He says, I'm gonna gather you. This is First Samuel 7. I'm gonna pray for you. And you know who hears about this as they gather and they're repenting before God in front of their sins and Samuel is leading the people to return to the Lord? The Philistines, the enemies hear about it. <laughs> and they start gathering their forces and they're gonna take on the Israelites who are in the middle of a giant worship service and they're gonna go kill them off. What does Samuel do? I find it so fascinating. He tells all the people, do not cease to cry out to the Lord your God so that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And look at 1 Samuel 7 verse nine. <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't say, all right, generals, let's gather our armies and try to defend ourselves. No, they're helpless and open and in a very vulnerable position. But Samuel doesn't fear. He doesn't worry. He tells them to cry out to God. And in verse nine, you know what Samuel does? Instead of freaking out or fearing, he says, so Samuel took a nursing lamb and he offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. Verse 10 says, Samuel was offering up the burnt offering as the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. Think about that. They are literally attacking, and Samuel's over here fumbling with a lighter trying to light this, this little altar, and everyone's probably trying to fear what is going on. We've got to run, we've got to do something, and Samuel is wholly committed to God. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion and they were defeated before Israel. It's an incredible, incredible little story, a little microcosm of how God is in control and God is the one we worship. Our salvation alone comes from him, not war horses and chariots. And so we do not cease to cry out to him and then he has the people set up a stone and he calls the stone Ebenezer and that stone means the, until this day the Lord has helped. Look at all that God has done to us in this day. So then let us commit ourselves to keep the ways of the Lord and follow him in all that he has done. And he will be faithful even when we are not. So let us commit ourselves to being faithful. And that's, he draws all of Israel to that. But very shortly after that, the people cry out. They don't cry out to God for worship of him, but they cry out for something else. They look around and they see the other nations are led by a king all the other nations have this king, this cool king with a crown, and he walks around with authority. We want to be like them, they say. First Samuel 8, verses 19 and 20, it talks about how the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like 
all the other nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Who do they want fighting their battles? They want a king fighting their battles. They don't want the king of kings fighting their battles. And so God says, all right, I'm gonna give this to you. He lets them have a king and he commands Samuel to find Saul, who is an archetype or a foil character to the character of David, right? Saul and David, very opposite kinds of people, even physically. Saul is, is very tall, right? Right, tall people, right? Okay, he's very tall and kingly, he's stately, but inwardly, inwardly he's weak. Inwardly he disobeys God and outwardly his actions show that and God is clearly contrasting for us the way of disobedience and trusting in your own power and the way of King David and the way of contritely repenting in our hearts to follow the ways of God. So though Saul is tall and outwardly kingly, David is short. In fact, you could say he's the runt of the family. They didn't even have him come to the meeting with Samuel when he was anointed. He's out taking care of the sheep. You don't have time for him. You don't want him. Saul is this flash in the plan. He's this uh, starts out strong. His charisma really shortly um, outpaces his character. His character lacks and he disobeys God. Saul falls from grace. He consults a soothsayer medium in order to get the voice and understanding and direction for the future. He doesn't go to God, he doesn't go to the word, he doesn't go to uh, the priests at that time, he goes to a soothsayer, a witch you could say. He impatiently takes matters into his own hands and profanes the role of the priest by saying he himself is it and he doesn't give Samuel time to arrive and he offers the sacrifice in his own time. Then he directly disobeys God's command to wipe out the king. He keeps the best of the things for himself because you know why? Saul knows better than God, right? <laughs> Don't we all put ourselves in that place as well? And so because of this, God judges him. His spirit leaves him and it falls on David. And these themes that we just see throughout scripture that we've already detailed in this series over and over is found also in the words of Jesus that whoever exalts himself will be humbled and yet whoever humbles himself will be exalted. God cares more about the heart than your outward measures of success in your right ways. God will give the increase. And so Samuel, and God tell, through Samuel, God tells Saul that when he makes a sacrifice in his own way, in his own timing, Samuel says, as the Lord, as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, some of you are familiar with this, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. I care more about your heart than what you outwardly do. I care more about who you are on the inside and your faith for me than your actions that supposedly demonstrate that you know better or you're following all the rules. And so that we would find just this simplicity in our faith and that our our hearts would just be positioned to receive what he has and to trust him in all that he does and all of his ways and to follow him wherever he leads, just the simplicity of faith and this simple kid's story, kid's song, trust and obey. Right? Is it, it's just so often these kiddie things that we do in Sunday school, we're like, well that's just for the children and yet we as adults need to be reminded of the simplicity of faith obeying what he has for us and trusting him in all his ways. This is what Saul fails to do over and over and takes matters into his own hand and yet the opposite of this you could say is in King David. King David is found uh, in the anointing of David, right? Where, Where again he is the shortest one, he's at the end of the line and yet God sends Samuel to anoint him 
Where's David, they say. Oh, he's in the field taking care of the sheep. The runt of the family, the youngest, is pulled out. And God says, that's the man I have chosen. And again, we see Hannah's words echoing in our heart and in our mind. Not by might will I prevail, but I'm gonna use the smallest among you to do great things. For man looks not on the outward appearance, looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. That's right there in 1 Samuel. We see that in God looks on the heart, but we all look on the outward appearance and we see what's going on outwardly. And Psalm 51 says the sacrifice is written by King David himself. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. He cares about your heart the repentant and contrite, genuine, authentic nature of your heart more than your outward obedience. This would, in some ways, you could say, summarizes all of David's life, for he was not this model character of perfection. (laughs) Even when he failed, he committed adultery and murder, and yet he was still called a man after God's own heart because his heart was honest, genuine, true, and repentant. Where Saul failed and David failed, they both had opposite trajectories. One repented and ran to the foot of the cross, one went to God and asked for forgiveness, and the other made excuses and believed in himself. It was the heart devotion to God that made him great. And we see this depicted in the greatest story that you're all so familiar with, David and Goliath, right? that depicts literally what was just said about David's short stature is then immediately as a foil character brought about for us in David's in Goliath's height. You see, Goliath is tall, this, this is giant. In 1 Samuel 17 it says this. 1 Samuel 17 verse 45. 1 Samuel 17 verse 45, look at these words of David. That David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. Look at all the outward appearance. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and I will give the dead bodies of the host of this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts. That why? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all the assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Why is it that all of this is going on, David and Goliath? So that we just can conquer every giant that faces in front of us. Well, yes, our God goes before us, but we're not David. It's Jesus here that is depicted in David's life. Jesus is our conquering hero who conquers sin and the grave for us so that we who are standing in the sidelines are fearing and cowering and helpless and hopeless and not able to save ourselves. It is God's anointed one that comes into the presence of Goliath and slays David, so, uh, slays Goliath so that we may know that the Lord saves, not with might shall man prevail. It's the Lord who saves us. David is depicted here as the Lord's anointed one, the Messiah. That anointed word is, one is actually where we get the word Messiah. When we say Jesus Christ, Christ is Messiah, Jesus Messiah, that word comes from the Old Testament word for anointed one, the one who is chosen by God to deliver his people. Here David depicted as the one chosen by God, anointed, the Messiah, the Christ here, and yet we find that he's not the final one, he just points to the one who is going to come. Jesus Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one of God to save his beloved people. And we see this in the New Testament where the the blind, I think it is Bartimaeus, says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. 
We see the son of David, the son of man, the son of God, the anointed one, Jesus Christ, coming in and slaying Goliath of sin and death to rescue all of us so that we may partake in the victories and the spoils and the inheritance and the freedom that comes through Jesus' conquering power on the cross. That's what David represents for you and for me. David then as a king unites the kingdom as he slays Goliath and many other of the armies of the enemies of Israel. We see David unite the tribes and for the first time a king comes to the throne that unites all of Judah and all of Israel under one banner. God gives them rest because of this. God gives them rest and victory He gives them unity and togetherness and a purpose. He gives them a foretaste of glory if only they were to continue in these things. And we see that there is this height that is being taken here. There is this climax, there is this mountain that we're going and David is leading us to the mountain where the temple will be and the story is reaching the climax and the peak of the the scripture, really. We're leading us to the top. This picture here in the Old Testament where David in his heart says, I live in a house of cedar, but God lives in a little dinky old tent. Let me build a house for God, a house for the Lord. And we see that God tells David that you are a man of war, you will not build the house, though I will give you the patterns for the house. You will pass the pattern for the house of God to your son Solomon. Solomon takes the throne after David is old and he leads Israel to literally the climax of its history, the empire, the pinnacle, the height of peace, wealth, and worship, you could say at that time, as Solomon builds the temple of God. You can look at with me if you'd like in 2 Chronicles 3, and we're coming here to the conclusion of the message here, but in 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 3, verses one and two, we see Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. On the Mount Moriah, we'll talk about this in a moment, where the Lord has appeared to David his father at the place that David appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. He builds the temple. And what we see again is this climax reaches its point. This magnificent temple is built in order to give glory and worship to God. We see that, well, Pastor Josh next week gets all the bad news. <laughs> I'm kind of the good cop this week, and Pastor Josh next week gets the bad cop where the, it all comes crashing down. It is all downhill from here. The kingdom divides, and there is uh, the trial of the kings, and he'll, he'll tell you all about the bad news next week. But here, we come to the temple of God. The temple provides for us this beautiful lens for us to see the glory of God, his mission that spreads into Israel to give his love and grace to the world. He's using Israel as a vehicle to deliver the salvation of God to the world. And we see the temple as this garden depiction. There were not idols that were in the temple. There were not pictures of gods. There were pictures of garden imagery. There were, there were pomegranates, there were leaves, there were flowers, there was a pool outside of the temple that reflected like a lily, a flower. It was there to create a space, a haven, you could say an Eden. The temple and the tabernacle reflected in many ways what God had aimed for at the beginning in the Garden of Eden. A heaven and earth unity coming together where God would dwell among his people in peace and open relationship with them, where he could walk in the cool of the garden. And the temple was a space where God's presence dwelt in the mercy seat and the holy of holies, where atonement could be made for the thing that keeps us from God, our sins, that, God's, that, that atonement through the sacrifices that pointed to the greater sacrifice that was going to come in Jesus was made there in the temple, a place of atonement. 
We see that in the garden imagery that God is desiring to remake this garden of Eden so that we could be in restoration and reconciliation with him. We see also in the site that was chosen for the temple, not arbitrarily chosen, but on purpose. For in Genesis 22, it says that Abraham brought Isaac to Mount Moriah to offer Isaac on the altar. But instead, God provides a ram as a substitute. You know the story. And then from there, we see that David in Second Chronicles has a grave sin, and he sins against God, and God sends a plague upon the people, and he makes an atoning sacrifice for the people of Israel to remove this plague in First and Second Chronicles, and he does it on this Mount Moriah where he buys from Ornan the Jebusite a threshing floor in order to make an altar unto God, and it is on that very site that God tells Solomon to begin building the house of the Lord on Mount Moriah where Abraham your forefather made a sacrifice of a ram and where your father David made a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people and where you now will build a temple for you for an, an all time in Jerusalem to make atonement for the sins of the people and where one day Jesus will come and walk into the temple and be pulled and dragged to the outside skirts of the temple mount into outside the city walls to be sacrificed on a cross to atone for the sins of the entire world. This is the story of God that he is imbuing, imbibing right into the story, into the very fabric of scripture and all that we are. We see there in the temple and in Jerusalem the atoning power of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I wanna look at one last passage as we close. Is that okay? One last passage, we're at 2.14, that's not too bad. (laughs) After all we've gone through. One last passage in Ephesians 2. If you turn with me to the New Testament, we've been walking through the Old Testament, we've covered Hannah and Samuel. We've gotten Samuel as a bridge into Saul and the kings, and then from Saul and his failed leadership into David, the greatest king that they'd ever seen, and then into Solomon, who's given and built this magnificent temple. We see eventually the temple will be destroyed and the kingdom will be divided, but we know that in the New Testament there is another temple, the one that we're participating in even today. And so look at, in Ephesians 2, I just want you to allow all the busyness that's gone, let us look at this passage as we close. You look at Ephesians 2, verse 12, and there's a couple verses here, and you're gonna notice how it ends. In verse 12, it says, remember. And notice all the temple imagery, all the imagery of a relationship that's gonna be given in here, that we were far from God, and now we're brought near. We were sinners, and now we are together. There were dividing walls in the temple that kept the holy of holies and the most holy places apart. Not anybody could just walk into there. And so in verse 12, it says, remember that you were at the time separated from Christ. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant's promise, having what? No hope like Baron Hannah, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, For he has made both one and um, broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he would create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, the word is shalom there, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came, he came, and he preached peace. 
He preached peace to you who are far off and to those you were brought near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you too are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, get this, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a what? A holy temple in the Lord. O holy temple in the Lord, in him you were being built together, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Greater temples here today. We are the temple. Members of the body of Christ, in whom the whole structure, like 1 Peter says, we are living stones being built into the walls that are building this temple together in one, being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and most importantly, the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. Our bodies, yes, our temples of the Holy Spirit, but we are not uniquely apart. It is when we gather together, we are one. In the church, we find that the temple is best described and best shown to the world. This is the church. See, brothers and sisters, we ought to not devalue the role of church today. For what has God been doing in the beginning, from the very beginning, from the fall, restoring a broken relationship? And he has given us his mission to bear that image of his glory across the earth. What was lost has now been restored in part in the tabernacle. God exemplifies and, and, and really kind of majestically opens that image even further in the temple as he deepens that image of his desire to dwell with man. And then Jesus fulfills all of that and expands it by going to the throne and mediating on our behalf, becoming our eternal sacrifice and our eternal priest. And as he sits there, we are not left alone, for he leaves with us the Holy Spirit to then fill the church and to unite the church so that we here, even little old Jaffrey, New Hampshire, with a messed up AC unit, we, in our craziness, are the visible expression of God's holy temple on this earth. His presence here on earth is in his body, members of one another, and this is what we call church. And we cannot allow anyone to devalue the role of it, that it is, it is just something we add on into our lives. It is just a lifestyle choice, just like you choose your outfit for the morning, maybe you choose church if it so gets around to it if we have time. Church is who we are. It is that we are the very dwelling place of God. And Solomon cries out when he, when he dedicates the temple, is it true that God would dwell with man, Solomon said. Is it true that God would dwell with us? He sent Emmanuel, God with us. And it is that Jesus who has enabled a new relationship to be with him. We are reconciled. What was lost is restored. He brings us into relationship so we can speak with him. We can come, as Hebrews 4 says, into the throne, the throne room, and go with confidence to receive help in time of need. We put our faith in him because he alone fights our battles. He alone is God. As Hannah says, it is not by might that we prevail, but by the power of God. It is that he is salvation. The Lord alone is salvation. There is no other name 
on this planet that every knee will bow by. It is through the name of Jesus. We trust in his promises. He saves even to the uttermost, and he can save you today. He can save you and be in your life today. You can give him all that you have because he's trustworthy, his promises don't fail, and he is able. He has proven it from the beginning and he's continuing to prove it today. We give him all that he has and we praise him from the beginning to the end. And I'm gonna close in prayer and are you guys, would you like to close with a final song? Are we all set? All right, let's do it. Okay, we're gonna do that. We're gonna close in a final song. I'm gonna close in prayer. God, thank you for this. Thank you for even just, though our time has been pushed back by things out of our control, we, we love you, Father. We give you the glory today and we praise you, God, for your good. And you are powerful and you save It might even seem silly to some who don't understand this relationship and the intimacy of a relationship with the creator God. But God, we know that you're real. We trust in your power to do so. And we give you the glory today. Help us, God, to leave this place, though it's been a crazy morning and weekend. We thank you, God, that you are alive. You're on the throne and in your control. And we worship you today. We worship you today because you are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of all that you have done in this life. We praise you, God, for these good things. We give you the glory today. Thank you, God, for saving us and sending Jesus to be our sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.